Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study the book of Numbers in our series, The Wilderness Wanderings. We're going to find ourselves in Numbers chapter 27 today. Numbers chapter 27. I had recently heard a story about Dr. Al Mohler, who you may or may not know him. He's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he was brought in a number of years ago. If, if you've ever followed or know anything about the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a number of years where there was some definite theological liberalism that had been creeping in, the denying of uh, the Word of God and the fundamental truths of Christian orthodoxy and Christian uh, doctrine. And there were a number of the professors, even at that seminary, who just openly denied God's Word as being inspired and other, other uh, true doctrines from the Word of God. And Dr. Moeller was brought back in to bring the seminary back into fidelity, into truth, and follow after the truths of God's word. Well, one of, the, one of the seminary professors was an individual who fought him. He talks about tooth and nail and just made it very difficult for him to be able to go forward and, and was really giving him a hard time because he did not want to hold to what Dr. Moeller said we as a seminary are going to hold to as far as the inspired word of God and the consistent cardinal doctrines of the, of Christian, of the Christian faith. Eventually, this individual was relieved of his duty from the seminary, and Dr. Moeller talks about about 15 years later, as he was sitting in an airport in Atlanta, he looked up and he saw this gentleman walking toward him, and he said it was honestly even 15 years, it was still too soon to see him, but he ex- exchanged pleasantries, started talking with him, and as they talked, uh, they, they were just ready to part their ways, and before they did, this, this individual, who formerly was a professor at the seminary, said to Dr. Moeller, would you do me a favor? There's a new student at your school, at the seminary, and would you just check in on him every once in a while for me? He's just started, and I I would appreciate if you would do that for me. So Dr. Moeller looked at him and said, yeah, absolutely, I'll do that. Got the gentleman's name, and before they left, he said, can you just answer me one question? What is this individual's connection to you? And the individual said, well, that's my grandson, and he loves your institution and all that you stand for. And he loves you. He says, you're, in fact, you're his hero. And Dr. Moeller said that he would check in on this individual. But when I heard that story and was reading it, it just reminded me a lot of the nation of Israel, especially as we get to Numbers chapter 26, 27. The old generation that had denied God's faithfulness, the old generation that had denied his providence and his provision and his protection through the the grumbling and through those 40 years has now passed away. And this next generation, the new group of, of Israelites who are going to head into the promised land, who are going to secure the inheritance that has been promised to them, they are now ready. And we see, and we saw, talked about it last time, the marvelous grace of God to this next generation is evident in spite of their forefathers' failure of faith. God's grace was evident all through Numbers chapter 26. And Israel, remember, did nothing to secure this promise. They did nothing to deserve it. It was something that was granted to them by God. In fact, as we look at Numbers 26, we're reminded of the journey and the inheritance that is, that is there, the struggle that they had going through life just like we as believers, we have that journey that we go through life, but we look forward to that great inheritance. The same was true for the Jews. They were looking forward to that inheritance, the possession of the land, the division of the land, the the land that had been promised to them by Abraham some 430 years prior to that. That's the overarching theme of Numbers chapter 26. 
And as, you, as we go into Numbers chapter 27, that, all of 26 obviously provides that background for Numbers 27, that there is a land, that we are about to possess it, that the old generation is gone, that the new generation is entitled to have this, not entitled in a bad way, but in a good way. And they're ready to, to take over by faith going forward, not like their forefathers did, not all the warnings that had been passed down, but to go forward by faith to take over that. And as we come to Numbers 27, all of that in the background, we come to a point where there's a, there's a problem for a family. And yet this one family courageously steps forward and comes to Moses and the leaders and all of the children of Israel to present their requests and their proposal. They're called the daughters of Zelophad or Zelophad. I'm going to say fad because that's how I often say it. I said fod. But the daughters of Zelophad. And as they're there, you're going to see in Numbers chapter 27, verse 1, it talks about, then came the daughters of Zelophad, the son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. So there's their lineage. Where are they from? They're from, they're descendants of Joseph. They're descendants of the tribe of Manasseh. And they're here, but they have no, they have no brothers. They, their father is gone. He passed away with the old generation. And so they are the most, when you think about it, in that culture, they are the most unlikely or unexpected group to gain an inheritance. They're, they're single women who, in their, that culture in the ancient Near East, Bible times, Old Testament, the culture was they really wouldn't have had a whole lot to stand on. And yet they're going to receive an inheritance we're going to see according to God's grace. These daughters have realized that because they had no brothers— their father's family, their lineage, their legacy, the land allotment that they should have, it would all, it would all be lost. And so out of concern for the, the heritage, out of concern for their livelihood, they approach Moses. They are going to, notice in verse 2, what do they do? They stood, and look who they stand before, before Moses, before Eliezer, before the princes and before all the congregation by the door of the tabernacle. So these individuals are going to stand there. These four, five ladies are going to stand and plead their case before Moses, all the leaders, and all of the congregation at the door of the tabernacle. This is where judgment, legal judgment, was going to be issued. So they are making a legal case. They are coming with their, their situation, with their proposal, with their... Uh, evidences as to why and what, what is happening. And they stand there. They're concerned about their family tree, that the family tree of Zelophehad is not going to branch. It's going to be one trunk and it's going to be dead. It's not going to be fruitful and prosperous in the land. So as they come and concerned about that, they look and they say to Moses, here's our situation. Our father has died, but he didn't die by one of the major rebellions. He didn't die by it with, with like Korah in verse three. He said, but he did die. And he did die according to his sins. They recognized that he was a sinner, that he deserved, just like the others in the first generation, to die. They recognized that he didn't just die naturally. He died because of his sinful choices. Maybe he was involved in one of the other grumblings or the murmurings, but in some way, maybe he was one of the men who was supposed to go to, into the, children, uh, the initial conquest in Canaan back in Kadesh Barnea and rebelled. We don't know. All we know is that they recognized very openly that they didn't try to re rewrite history. They said, 
This is what he did. He died according to his sins. They're coming with the same legal footing as all the other Israelites is what's happening. They're saying just like every other Israelite that is here present, their parents have died. They're gone. And so, so are ours because of their sinfulness. The, sin, the payment for their sin has been death. And they died and we're standing just like everybody else. But the difference is we don't have any brothers who are going to be able to carry on dad's legacy, carry on the name of Zelophehad. Now, you know, it's, it's very different. Very different, their approach to what we've seen with the former generation, isn't it? When the former generation didn't think something was fair, they didn't like it, what did they do? They grumbled, they complained, they, they uh, bickered with one another. But here we have these five ladies wisely coming to Moses and the leaders and graciously stating their case to them. Now, what were the specifics of the situation? The specifics, especially culturally, is that unmarried daughters up until this point, they had no claim or inheritance to, to land or inheritance in Israel. Now, there were some other, some of the other, Moab, there's historical evidence that even by this time, some of the uh, unmarried daughters would have land claims. And what's interesting is they don't argue from a position of culture. They don't look and go, well, the Moabite women can do this. They come and they say, this is, this is the situation we find ourselves in. We have no land claim. Leviticus 25 explains that and who the land goes to and how it goes to the sons and to the uncles and to the other men. And it talks about that. And they, they basically are saying, should our family, in verse number four, why should the name of the father, our father, Zelophehad, be done away from among his family because he has no son? He says, this, he didn't have, it's not his choice if he has a son or not. They're saying this, this is providentially what is here. We have five daughters. Why should we not receive inheritance in the land? Why should we not have a possession in that land? Now, some of you may be looking, well, what about the kinsman redeemer? Shouldn't that take place here? Shouldn't, shouldn't these, these five daughters be redeemed by one of their relatives? These daughters are unmarried daughters. Now, the, the kinsman redeemer is dealing with a situation for a widow. You can look back in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Because, I mean, you think about with Ruth. Ruth, Ruth is the, the ultimate, and Boaz being the ultimate kinsman redeemer who fast-forwards us to Christ. Well, what about, isn't it like that? No, because Ruth was widowed. And, and there was that, that allotment there. It opens, it, it, it seems to be the fact in Numbers 27 that if anybody should have been redeemed, it should have been Zelophehad's widow that was redeemed. But we have no evidence of her here. It seems like she passed away with the older generation. It only talks about the daughters and it would have put them in a, in a different situation. They're both dead. So this is not a kinsman redeemer situation where one of the uncles should marry and, and uh, sire or father uh, a man-child, a man-child, wow, a boy <laughs> that, is, that is there. And uh, so it's not, it's not a kinsman redeemer situation. But they don't just sit there and wallow and say, oh, this is so unfair. Life is, we need to change culture. We need to do all and, and don't have any solutions. These ladies wisely come with a solution. Now, it's a, it's a simple, straightforward one, but they're willing to ask. They're willing to, to come and say, we're going to come with the proper attitude, which they do. Verse number one, 
is very interesting. It was not this demanding of you need to right the wrongs of society. You need to fix and reconcile all the injustice that is happening to us as women. They don't come with a chip on their shoulder. They come with, here's a problem, here's a solution. Could we consider this? What does God say in the matter? In fact, in verse number one, we skim over it. But that word, then came the daughters, the word that's used there for came is often like when we talk about come, let us worship the Lord. Let us come, let us draw near. It is one where it is an attitude of supplication, of humility, of reverence, with a request that I don't have the right to ask, but I'm going to ask it. And they come with that proper attitude, not with an arrogant chip on their shoulder to just demand what they think they should have. As they approach and they talk with them, the daughters came with this proposed plan. Give unto us the possession the brothers, uh, among the brothers of our fathers. They're not looking and saying, give us land wherever. Give us, you know, something special. They say, can you give us a portion, Moses, of the land that belongs to our father's brothers, our tribe, the tribe of Manasseh? What would have been if we were five brothers in the tribe, would you give us that same allotment in the tribe for the tribe of Manasseh? And so they're asking that. Now, notice in verse number five or four, it says, give unto us, therefore, a possession among the brethren of our fathers. When you see that command where they say, give to us, when it is from a subordinate to an authority or to a superior it is seen as a request. And you'll know by how God often responds, or, you know, if God responds by chastening, you know the hard attitude is wrong. In this case here, they come as a subordinate to their superior, Moses, Eliezer, the priests, the, uh, the, the princes. They come with this attitude of reverence and respect, and they're not chided for the way they come. So they came with that proper attitude requesting for this land. And, and what's going to happen? Basically, when we look through, they believe that though their parents experienced God's righteous judgment, that they could and that they should be able to experience God's merciful blessing in the promised land. They're saying, don't allow us and don't allow my father to experience double jeopardy. No one else is facing that, where there's going to be the the wiping out of their family lineage and legacy. Let us be able to experience God's blessings in the promised land, just like everyone else. So Moses is now here, and I, I really find this as an encouragement to those whose parents may not have been the greatest spiritual role models. They are now able to look at the daughters of Zalafa and say, wait, our parents died in their sin, but we can still walk by faith. We can still be used by God. We can still experience God's blessings if we make the choices to live righteously before our God. And so they do that. Now Moses, as he, as he sits here, he's faced with something brand new. How do I respond to this? It's unprecedented in their legal system, in the Mosaic law. I mean, if anybody knows the Mosaic law, it's Moses. And it's an unprecedented thing. So what does he do? He doesn't just jump to uh, the conclusion. He inquires of God. He goes to God in verse 5, and he's going to ask God, what do you think about this? We often think of the Mosaic laws as extremely rigid, never able to be dealt with type of thing. But here we see, okay, the property law was established back in Leviticus. But now we have an interpretation or a need for an application or the case law. In this case, what do we do with the law? 
and Moses is going to seek God's wisdom, and there's going to be some fluidity to the situations to apply it to different areas. And, and so Moses has that ability as he talks with God, and God comes to him and says, guess what? The daughters, verse 6, and the Lord spake to Moses saying, the daughters of Zelophehad speak right. They speak correctly. What they're saying is true. The ruling here highlights the equality of women in the eyes of God. It's often said that God doesn't care about women. The Bible is just a misogynistic, you know, pig-headed bunch of men writing and they hate women. But we see here, God looks and says, absolutely. It may not be the cultural norm. Yeah, there's some places, but God says in our culture, in our Israelite culture, there is going to be the right for these female women, that's redundant, for these, these females to be able to have land, to be able to have status, to be able to help with the legacy of their family to continue. Theologically, the action, this section here, presses the rights of women to a clear and recognized legal position within the sphere of property law. It's a, it's a big deal. This, this changes everything for them. Like, oh, wow, these daughters can have the same status as these other men who have land. Now these daughters have that land. Now that is not the thrust of this passage, but it does highlight an emphasis that God, and that you see throughout Scripture, that God does value both men and women equally. And we ought to as well. Now, as it continues on, what does he say? He's going to give some clarifications to this law. In verses 7 uh, and following, it says, it's first going to go to the son, and if there's no son, the land, then who does the land go to? Then he says it's going to secondly go to the daughters. Now, somebody jump and say, see, I just told you, you just said they're equal, but why is the daughter second? Why would, why would that be the case? Think culturally, think where everything was at. When a woman would marry, her husband's land would become her land. They would jointly have it together. Now she would, in order to contribute to that, she would bring a dowry to help with the beginnings of their property, their new home and their husband's land. So they would come at that equally and bringing both different, different aspects to the, the home and to the, the marriage. So the land did not travel. She would not bring land along with her. She would bring a dowry. And I know you may look and say, wow, dowries, and they're because of dowries in different cultures in our present day, there have been a lot of heinous things that have happened. I understand that. I understand that in some cultures they, they will kill a, a young girl because they don't want to have to pay a dowry, or they, they just it causes a lot of trouble. And I understand that from a cultural perspective now. But Bible culture days, this is the way it was, and we can't rewrite that history. And so the ladies would not bring land with them. They would bring a dowry and the man would bring the land. And between the two of them, they would come and begin a marriage and a home together through that, through that system. But what if there were no daughters? Then it says that it's gonna, who gets the land? The man's brother. So if, uh, if, if I die and there's no, there's no man, then my brother would get it. And if I don't have a brother, then I would go to my uncles. And if I had no uncles as well, then I would go to the nearest person within the clan, within that tribe. Whoever's the closest male relative would then receive the land. But in the midst of all of those opportunities, it does, God says, the second in charge there, the second one to get it, are the daughters. So the daughters of Zalafahed are going to win this case 
so to speak, on, from God's judgment, that the land is to stay within the tribe. That's important. The, the, it's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't go from Manasseh to Judah and then over to Ephraim. It stays, the land is to stay within the tribe. So the land inheritance and family possession of the land are extremely intertwined throughout the Mosaic Law, throughout Israel's history. You get into the years of Jubilee and the returning of the lands to its rightful owners. It's because it comes back to the family because the, fa- the land belongs to the family and the family to the land. They're intertwined to one another. Now, when you look at this, this situation, you're like, okay, so what? So we get land for women? Is that just what this is talking about? Did you notice the faith and the wisdom of these ladies? It's, it's really astounding. They courageously and humbly approached the leaders and spoke up about their struggle. It wasn't arrogance. It wasn't just boldness and brashness. There was a courage to come before them. They had to step out by faith to do this, but they had to do it in a humble manner as well. We see that in verses one and two. We see that their faith was couched in the promises of God. Did you notice in verse number four? Why should the name of our families be done away with uh, from among his family? Give unto us, therefore, the what? A possession among the brethren of our father. A possession of what? There's nothing to be owned at this point. They're still in the wilderness. They're not in the land. They haven't conquered, but they believe by faith, more than their parents did, that God is going to provide us the land and God is going to provide us possession. Their faith was like, when we get in the land, we, want, we would like our portion too. So there's this faith that they are there and that Israel will take possession of it. They trusted in the word of God. They did not demand of God, but they were willing to follow God's rulings in this matter. They understood that the people died because of their sinfulness. They followed the word of God. They trusted that God's promises would take place and they walked in life according to God's word. They were going to accept the righteous judgments of God. They didn't go and whine and complain, but they said, Moses, what is the ruling on this? As Moses gives the ruling, they were going to accept the ruling whichever way. They were willing to walk in life by God's word. What a glorious example of how we are to approach struggles, how we are to approach going through life to do it by faith, trusting in God's promises, humbly but courageously standing, standing according to God's word, walking in the truth. It's, it's, they desired to know what God would have for their life. So they found and followed God's word in their life and they would accept that ruling. It reminds me, interestingly enough, of Joshua chapter one and verse seven. Do you remember this verse where God tells Joshua when he takes over, he says, only be strong and courageous that you may do what? Observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right nor to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. God tells Joshua, hey, be strong and courageous. Not not for the battles. He'll tell him about that later on. But in this verse, he says, you be humble enough to listen to the word of God, not go left or right. You be strong and courageous for what? To do the word of God. Why does he have to say that? Because when we look at life, when we look at the circumstances of life, it's really easy for us to not do according to God's word. 
but it's much easier for us to just go along with what is happening in life and culture and just sort of, eh. It takes strong faith, courage to stand and to follow the word of God, just like these women did. They said, we are willing to follow God's word, but we are going to courageously stand and ask and come before, come before God and follow what he says to do. Now, what I find is really interesting in this passage is if you look at Numbers 27, you have the daughters of Zelophehad, and then right after it, it's not, it, it's, it seems out of place, but you actually have Joshua becoming the successor to Moses. You have the transition of authority that's going to take place. Moses places the next passage concerning Joshua directly after these courageous and faithful women of wisdom and faith. What seems like a rabbit trail initially is beautifully placed in the book to teach us more about humble faith. These ladies demonstrated humble faith. Joshua is going to later on demonstrate humble faith. But what do we learn from this this passage here? This is a transition and a succession. And anytime there is transition in life, anytime there is succession of leadership in life, there is a nervous moment in our lives. No matter where it is, what it is, there's that, that scaredness, that nervousness, the anxiety that creeps up in our life. And so God here is now directing Moses to begin this process of transition. Everything in 26 and 27 is basically not to be trite, but out with the old, in with the new. And even that comes down to Moses as well in the leadership of these people. Now, it's going to be different than in the case of Aaron, where Aaron goes up and Aaron never comes down. Here we have, it's going to be declared what's going to happen, but Moses is not going to go up onto Mount Pisgah for another, you know, entire book of Deuteronomy until the end. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot more time that is going to expire before Moses passed away, but he places it here, and I believe for, for a specific reason. How does it tie into the passage? Chapter 26 and 27 are all about this transition into the land and the, the receiving of these promised inheritance. Chapter 26 is about the, the old generation that is no more and the new generation <clears throat> that is moving forward. The, the, the marvelous grace, as I mentioned earlier, of God to this next generation in spite of their forefather's failure of faith. They see God's grace in the transition. The first part of Numbers 27, that the most unlikely or unexpected person, group of people to receive an inheritance were these unmarried women. And yet God, through his grace, provides it. Now you come to Numbers 27 and verses 12 and 13, it's going, to fo- it's going to focus on Moses. And he's really, if you think about it, who's the most likely person? If you didn't know about, <clears throat> excuse me, Numbers 20, and you didn't know that Moses had forfeited his right into the land, you would look and say, Moses is the most likely character, individual, to be able to go into the land. And yet we're going to find out, <clears throat> as a reminder, that he's not that he's not going to enter into the land. Now, remember last time, there were these historical snippets of warnings and of grace that are, that are evidenced here in Numbers 26 and even into 27. You have the warning of the plague and then God spares all of Israel. You have the warning of Datham and Abiram and the sons of Korah, they live on. You had the warning of Ur and Onan, not Onana, Onan, and the grace that God continued the line of Korah and, or Judah 
and the kingly line that comes from them. You had the warning of Nadab and Abihu, this priestly line to continue. You had the warning of the first generation is gone, but the second generation is going to continue on. You had the warning of these parents, the reminder, these parents have died, but to the daughters of Zelophehad, you're going to be able to inherit. What grace of God. Now you have the warning of Moses' life. Even someone in that position, sin is, it can be, the judgment of sin can be faced by anybody. And you have a new leader who's going to be established. What grace. It all ties beautifully together in these two passages. And so Moses' failure, he's going to highlight it. He's going to reiterate it because he wants the people to know that he forfeited his right through his actions with Aaron. He forfeited his right to enter into the land. Verse 20 was that reminder of where that was. And he's saying basically no follower of the Lord is immune to sin and its judgment. He said even I can fail and I need to be judged for my sin. He doesn't, he doesn't get bitter. He doesn't get enraged. He is going to look in these, these verses here, 12, 13, 14, and he's going to say, I rebelled. And, he, and God reminds him, you rebelled against my commandment in the desert of Zin with the strife of the congregation. You did not treat me as holy. And so because of that, you forfeited your right. And so Moses understands that. But God's grace, once again, is even going to be out, seen in Moses' personal life. He does tell him, you'll be able to see the promised land. Now Moses still battles with that a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 3 He's going to ask God, can I please just, can I walk into the promised land and take a tour of it? I just want to see that land. And God actually looks at him and it says his wrath was, kin- wrath was kin- not wrath, but he was wrath against Moses. And he says, this is enough. I do not want to hear any more on this conversation, Moses. So he shuts it down. And he's like, Moses, we're done. You're not going into the land because of your decisions with me. What I, I find really amazing it's something to think about later on in your Bible studies when you're reading in Deuteronomy. That we don't think much about Moses. Uh, we don't think about it much, but Moses is going to gaze upon the promised land. And as he gazes upon that land that foreshadows the great promised land of heaven, he's going to see that, and those are going to be the last things he sees with his eyes before he dies. But when he dies, what happens? We know from Psalm 90, we know from Deuteronomy chapter 30 that Moses is going to open up his eyes and he is going to be with his forefathers. He's going to be in heaven seeing the great promised land. What grace of God to know that Moses, I'm making you this commitment, this promise that you will be with me. What an assurance, what a hope for Moses. What a great grace to know that my sin did not forfeit everything. It forfeited some temporal blessings, but my eternal blessings are forever with God. They are assured. It's providing the warning to the people. And yet Moses answers the question here, why do we need to transition to a new leader? Why do we need? Because I forfeited my right. And you're going to need a new leader. And so because you need a new leader, as you hear this, this is how God played it out in the passage. Now, think about this. If you were Moses at this point, honestly, what would you be praying about, you know, at the, right about this point? I know what I would do. I'd be like, Lord, please, is there anything I can do? Is there any way for me to be able to go in? Please, I will do whatever. I will, please, God. But that's not Moses' prayer. Moses' prayer has nothing to do with himself. Look at what Moses prays in verse 15 and 16. As Moses speaks to the Lord, 
He says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, the sovereign God of the universe, set a man over the congregation, which may go before them, who can lead them, who may go in before them into the land and lead them out of the wilderness, which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as a sheep which has no shepherd. We become, you know, almost selfish sometimes in our prayer requests, but Moses does not pray for his life to be extended. He doesn't pray for any selfish requests. He asked God to provide a leader for the nation of Israel that would replace him, that would help with the transition, that would be a godly leader for his people, one who could lead them in, out of the wilderness, into the promised land, and someone who can do that. His motivation really does reveal his pastoral care for his people. He looks and he says, I care about them so much. I know my, my life is coming to an end, but God replace me with somebody who can lead these people so that they will not be a sheep without a shepherd. Does that remind you of Jesus? Remember Matthew chapter nine, where he says, when he saw the multitudes, Christ is also up on a mountaintop looking out. And as he sees the multitudes, he's moved with compassion on them because they were fainting, they were wandering, they were scattered. They were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Do you remember what Jesus' response to that situation was? What was his challenge to his disciples when he saw that? When he saw the people, it's exactly what Moses did. He says, pray, because the, Lord of the harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers, the people who can shepherd these people are few. Pray the Lord, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus understood it. Moses understood it. That people needed shepherding. That people needed someone to guide them spiritually. And so the disciples were to be praying for that because people need spiritual leadership. It could be you discipling them. The, the shepherding does not just have to occur from a pastor only, although that is definitely one of our roles. That is definitely one of our responsibilities to pastor care, a pastor caring for his people but it's also you shepherding, you being the answer to going and telling people, shepherding them because they're wandering off in sin. They're rebelling or, or denying God and going with them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, all of us praying for them. And God's communication with Moses happens here. How does God respond to this prayer of Moses? Now, I think for us, when we hear, okay, Moses talked to God and God talked to Moses, it's become such the status quo in Exodus through Deuteronomy that we sort of check out on that. That we don't realize that this is a special position that God and Moses have together. Moses is in communion with God and God speaks directly with Moses. He is the mediator. He is the intercessor. He does not need one. He gets to go and talk with God to each other. And God says to him, Moses, I hear your plea. And here's the answer. I want you to take that man, Joshua, who is spirit-filled already. He is the one following me. And I want you to make him my next leader. There were very few people at this point in Israel's history who had the necessary elder status as well as the spirit-filled life, as well as the leadership qualities to be considered for this position. And God says, Moses, I want you to take Joshua. Make Joshua the leader. And what do I want you to do? I want you to set him before, look in verse 19. 
set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and give him charge in their sight. It rings very similarly back to verse two where those daughters of Zelophehad stand before, they're set before the priest and before Moses and before the congregation. There was an authority decision that was going to be made. Same thing is true here with Joshua. Put him before all of these people so that everybody knows this is a decision declared by God that you are to obey this decree that it was. It was a public display. I want you to do this. Look in verse 19 and 20. I want you to give him charge in their sight. And you shall put some of thine honor upon him that the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. What is he telling Moses? Moses, I want you to give Joshua some authority and responsibility before the people to make decisions, to start leading and directing these people. Why does, why does he do that? Why is this laid out? Why the transition? That the people may learn to be obedient to Joshua. He's saying we need to make this transition. The natural inclination of the people would be to second guess whoever follows a great leader. That's our natural human bent. We naturally second guess the leadership in our life. So you look at this situation with a group of people who has a history of complaining against leaders, and if Moses were just all of a sudden die with no successor, and Joshua steps in, the people are going to second guess everything. Well, I don't know if Moses would have done that. I don't know if Moses would have done it that way. If Moses would have said that, now by doing it this way, God has established a smooth transition from Moses to Joshua, that the people could learn to be obedient to Joshua and that Moses was basically signing off and saying he's leading correctly and you need to follow him. And he begins to take a a back seat to the leadership of Joshua. But he does not take, he does not abdicate his responsibilities because God is still directly dealing with Moses. It is a co-rulership that's happening, allowing the people to see what not only See that not only Moses, but Moses who speaks with God is placing his confidence and authority in Joshua lends massive credibility to Joshua's leadership now and in the future when Moses is gone. One, uh, one pastor said it this way, Dr. Ligon Duncan. He said, Joshua is chosen by God to be, excuse me, Moses' successor and to serve as a co-ruler for a time. God tells Moses to appoint Joshua in front of everybody and to give him some of his authority so that in the remainder of Moses' life, Joshua's rule will overlap his rule and together they will be co-rulers over the people of God and the people of God will become accustomed to Joshua's leadership and they will trust Joshua's leadership and they will follow Joshua's leadership until a succession plan is complete. God was having a vision. Moses had a vision for the future of the congregation. He had direction, and he said, this is what we're going to do in order to allow for the long-term benefit of the children of Israel. And they put that plan into place. But there's still a difference here between Moses and Joshua. There will be any, uh, as there will be in any transition of leadership. Joshua's not going to do the same things the same as Moses. He's not even going to have the ability to do the same thing as Moses. That happens with any transition of leadership. There's, there's the next leader is not always the same as the previous leader. And we cannot expect them to be. They're different people. They have different abilities, giftedness by God. 
That happens, and that happens here. It's important that people to, for people to recognize that God will work in different ways through different leaders. That's part of God's plan. That's part of God's ways. He even does it here directly with Moses and Joshua. Look what, look what happens. Moses, remember I said this becomes trite to us, but Moses spoke with God and God spoke with Moses. But what happens here? Look down in verse number 20. You're going to have him that he's going to go before, Joshua is going to have to go before, verse 21. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall ask, ask counsel for him after the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out. And at his word they shall come in, both he and all the children of Israel, even all the congregation. Joshua is now going to speak with the priest, not directly with God. God may at times speak to Joshua, but Joshua is not going to have the ability, like Moses, to directly go to God. He is now going to go through the priest. And the priest is then going to consult God through the Umi, Urim and the Urim and the Thummim. That's so hard to say. What were those? Those were these instruments that were used by the priest to divine or to understand the divine illumination of God. It helped them to understand what God's will is. And we don't, Scripture does not lay out exactly what it is. There's different records in history, so you can't look and say, I know exactly how they did it, because nobody knows exactly how they did it. But we know that they were able to use that. The priest, was, the high priest was, it was in his linen and his ephod that was there, and he was able to discern God's will. How that happened, we don't know, but that we know that biblically that, that happened. And then the priest would relay the message back to, from God back to Joshua, and then Joshua would disseminate it to the people. So there is an extra step that is now placed in here with the intercessory and the mediatorial work of the priest now that Moses does not bestow upon Joshua. Joshua doesn't have that, that ability. And what's interesting is the theme of obedience here. Submitting to the restraint or the command of an authority. It is to be prompt. It is to be cheerful. It is to be lasting. Moses is faced with an obedience crisis. Am I going to transition to Joshua? Or am I going to hold on and say, nope, I'm going to wait? Am I going to act like I did in Meribah, back up in verses 12, 13, 14, and rebel and not obey God, or only do part of what God says, or am I going to do all that God says? What is he going to do? And we, we know, because the general tenor of Moses, outside of a couple moments, is that he obeys. Moses is going to obey. Even though transition in life and ministry is a painful but important issue to resolve, Moses, faced with the terminality of his life and his ministry, must choose to act like his righteous, humble self and to do what is best for the people based upon God's instruction to him. And he does that. And Moses did, verse 22, as the Lord commanded him, it took Joshua, set him before Eliezer and the priest, the priest and before the congregation, and he laid his hands, both of them, maybe bestowing a double blessing upon him, and gave him charge as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. What do we see here? Yes, there's, there's principles of transition. There's principles that you could apply to business models of how to transition in leadership. Yes, that, that's there. But what do we see from this character of Moses? What do we see him? For Moses, it's the beginning of the end. And yet, he does what he knows is best for the people. He relinquishes some of his authority for the long-term care 
of the people so that they could begin to trust in Joshua, unlike his acts at Meribah. But what do we see? In his pastoral love for the people, Moses demonstrates to not only Joshua, but to all of us, what godliness is truly like. In this moment that is hard, painful, he's, he's coming to grips with not only is my position in my leadership ministry coming to an end, but my life is coming to an end. How does he handle that? How does he grow old gracefully? He shows that godliness is selfless. He accepts God's judgment upon his sin, that he can't enter into the promised land. Yet in all, his concern was not about himself, but about others. He shows that godliness is dependent, dependent upon who? Dependent upon God. That this is not merely some theological construct in his mind, but this was practical. Moses had to not only look and say, I can do it better than Joshua, but now he has to look and say, wait, I need to trust that what God has said is right. That what God has laid out is the plan that I need to follow. God said also that Joshua is to take the reins a little, but I need to trust God that that's what needs to happen. God said Joshua is the man for the people. I know Joshua. I've been, he's been around me forever. I need to depend on God that that is, that is God's wisdom. Godliness is obedient. He follows through. He takes the word of God. There was no delay in his action. There was no second guessing of God's thoughts. This is the beauty of Moses, starting with his disobedience and then ending with the highlight of God's grace and providing leadership for the people. He says, I'm obedient and I'm doing what God says and he's answering my prayers. He's granting me the blessings that I desire for you as a people that he transitions somebody and God gives him Joshua. And through Moses' obedience, the smooth transition happens for a huge nation of people from a very powerful, very wise, very godly, very charismatic leader to this man, Joshua. And this smooth transition happens. Why? Because Moses was obedient. Because he understood that godliness was to follow God's ways and to do it. Whether it's observing these actions through the five wise women of faithfulness or through the weary leader, but a wise leader, I think when we look at Numbers 27, we can learn this very pointed and true fact that when we observe both of them and how they acted, how they responded, humble faith, humble faith courageously walks through life according to what? To God's decrees and God's desires. If we were to have humble genuine faith that God blesses, then we are to walk through this life, the highs and the lows, the seeming injustices or the great blessings, the tragedies and the triumphs, the heartache and the wonderful joys of life, the difficult calls when we hear we have cancer or the blessings of hearing about new births that are coming into our family. All of those different highs and lows, no matter what, humble faith courageously walks through life according to God's decrees and God's decisions. May we be people that trust God in the transitions of our life 
and we humbly walk in courageous faith. God, I pray that you would help us to walk according to your decrees, to your desires, to your word. Help us to walk humbly with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye.